there's a time where uh, Ted drove us up to his grandma's house. And uh, it was his grandma's house, mind you. And I was giving Ted directions on how to get to his grandma's house. <laughs> where do we turn? We go here, Ted. Yeah, I still <laughs> so, so, yeah. Anyway, not figuring on Ted and his family. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into Samuel, Second Samuel fourteen. So, uh, I don't I don't know why I'm talking about this. I'm making this longer. I, I don't want you guys to eat tacos. That's really what it is. <laughs> you guys hungry for the tacos? Um, let's go ahead, Josiah. Why don't you pray for us this morning? So last week we uh, dealt with uh, Amnon and Tamar and the situation there where Amnon rapes his sister and then Absalom kills Amnon and then flees to Syria. And we're at that, that state where Absalom is now in Syria away from David and we're going to deal with, I call this Absalom's reconciled to David and, and reconciled not in the sense of Everything's going to be right after this, but uh, just kind of how he returns to Israel, because this is important for the next chapter, because he has to be in Israel for the next chapter to happen. Uh, so reconcile it as he is brought back to Israel and kind of seen as everything's a little bit restored as far as his status and um, his life in the kingdom here. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, in Second Samuel 14, and Joab, our favorite general, is going to play an important role in this chapter, so we'll see a lot of him this morning. Um, and Joab's not going to be as ruthless as we've seen him in the past, uh, so it's kind of a different side of Joab that we see. Um, so let's go ahead and read, and we'll, we'll learn a little bit this morning. So starting verses 1 through 3, Gabriel, your hand went up quick. Gabriel wants some candy this morning. He doesn't want to wait for the tacos. <laughs> Was it not passed to you, or you just just pass on? Oh well, here I'm going to make sure that it gets passed to you. If you want to take extra candy because you've been left out, So a couple of weeks ago, I was being harassed about my words being too guessable. So I'm using the word scheme here. Is that scheme? Did I spell it wrong? That's scheme. So scheme. Joab comes up with a scheme. And that's kind of what this is here. Um, Joab senses David's feelings. Um, this word concerned... Concerned is a pretty cool word in English. You know, it has, has a good meaning, a good definite meaning. In the Hebrew here, this is a preposition. And if you know anything about uh, languages, Greek and Hebrew, prepositions in these languages are a little bit fluid. Um, they can have a lot of different meanings. Uh, this could be by, for, uh, it could be also against. And it seems to be, as you read through this passage and see what David's feelings truly are, Against could really be a good translation here is that the king's heart was against Absalom and not really concerned for her because you see how David feels even as Absalom comes back. He's not really concerned about his well-being. He's not really concerned about him. He seems to be more against him. He's not sending for Absalom. Later on, even as Absalom comes back, he's not really interested in reconciling with him. 
against is probably a better idea of what it is, that Joab's concerned because David's heart, even in the last chapter, talked about that he was comforted because Amnon was punished. He died because of his crimes. Now he's not feeling so great about Absalom anymore because Absalom fled, and now it seems like David's heart is kind of turning against Absalom, and Joab's concerned about this. And so this is why he's coming up with this scheme here, because he wants to do something about that. Um, so that's kind of what I'm, I'm thinking this is here. Uh, that's, that's why I said it could be against. I'm not definite on this, but that's kind of how I'm taking it here. So Joab says for a wise woman, this wide, wise is kind of the idea of a crafty woman, someone who's uh, very good at playing a part. And she's going to play a part here because she's going to, as you'll see in a second, she's going to come up with a story that's not true, uh, but she's going to act it out and she's going to play it for David. And she's going to... Um, She's going to act out this story to make David do something that Joab wants David to do. And Joab gives her these instructions. You're going to be a mourner. And he says, don't put on oil. Well, the idea when you go before a king, you're supposed to dress nice. You're supposed to clean yourself up. And in that culture, you, know, you would anoint yourself with oil because that was part of making yourself look nice and getting yourself cleaned up was to anoint yourself with oil. We don't do that nowadays. We take a shower and bathe and get dressed up, and if you're a woman, if you were going to see the president or whatever, you probably you know, put on makeup and get fancied up and whatever. This day and age, you put on oil. You anoint yourself to make yourself look good and look nice and smell nice and be nice and fresh for the king. He says, don't do this. Make yourself look like you're mourning. And pretend that you are mourning. Dress as if you're mourning. You pretend as if someone had died. You go to the king and speak these words I'm going to give to you. And at this point in the story, we don't know what the words are. We're going to find out in a second what the words are. But uh, the way this is written, it's, it's like, here's the words I'm going to give you. What are the words? Oh, we're going to find out in a second. You know, it's kind of like Pastor Dean's been doing to us on Wednesday night. You want to hear the rest of the story? Come back next week. Come back next week. Here, it's just read on. You know, make you come back next week and read the rest of the Bible. But read ahead, and you'll find out what the words are. So go speak the words I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you your script. You go with this script to the king. And so, so he finds this woman, and she's going to go play the part for Joab before the king. And we're going to find out why, I think in a little bit, why Joab is sending for this woman to do this. And I'm not going to give away why he's having this woman do this, because I want to tell you a little bit later in the story when it comes apparent why Joab is having this woman do this. So, so this is his scheme. We have this woman come, pretend she's mourning, go before the king, and speak the words he wants her to speak because this is part of his plan. Let's see what the words are, because you guys all want to know what she says, right? So let's find out. Nathan. Nathan's hand went up really quick, even before I asked, so. Nathan gets So the woman tells her story to the king. Yeah, it is predictable. Sorry, I, I did one. Did one unpredictable one. It's her story. So she prostrates herself before David. This is, we'll see, this is what you do before the king. You bow before the king. Um, this is 
going to be typical in the story as you come before the king. Um, and she asks for help. That's, she has a story to tell, and she wants the king's help on this. So what's her story? Her husband's dead. Okay. Um, and she had two sons. Her two sons fought with each other, and one killed the other. And as we see from the idea of the story, they were fighting, and it wasn't a premeditated kill. It was within the fight, kind of accidental. Um, So it wasn't that one intentionally murdered the other. And now, because one killed the other, the rest of the family wants to kill the other son, and she's going to be left without an heir. So there's going to be no inheritance passed on to her son, She's gonna, her family's going to lose their inheritance. There's going to be nothing left in the land. There, there's going to be no passing on from father to son to son. And she's, she describes that the ember in her is going to die. There's going to be no prosperity left for her family to go on and on. And she's like, don't let my family kill my last heir. And the king says, okay, uh, you go to your home, and I'll, I'll make a judgment concerning this. And she pushes... Um, no, let, let this guilt be upon me and not on my son. If there's a judgment that needs to be made, let it be on me. And David kind of makes this, no, it's not going to be on you. I'll, I'll take this on myself. It's, this, this will be on me. And she keeps pushing and says, don't let any harm come to my son. And David finally makes it promise to her that no harm is going to come to her or her son because of this. And so she's, she's getting the judgment that Joab tells her, I want you to get the king to make this judgment that he's going to protect you and your son. And you can see kind of where this is going now, right? One son kills the other son. So get him to say that the son's going to be protected. Because there's a parallel here now with a son killing another son. So you can turn this around, and that's what she's going to do here. Let's look at verses 12 through 17. Josiah. Therefore the woman said, Please, let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he says, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing in the hands of guilty, in that uh, the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water flow on the ground cannot be gathered up again. <coughs> that God does not take away life, but he devises means that his banished ones are not expelled from them. Now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord the King, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant, for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who has destroyed me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will not be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king, discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God go with you. So the woman turns the story toward David here. And you see that? She has to say a little bit more towards David. She got the judgment she wanted from David. She says, Can I say a little bit more to the king? You want to be very respectful before the king. Get permission to say some things. And the king's like, sure, say on. And she says, why have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? You know, she turns it to, you've done this against the nation of Israel here. Um, And the thing that you've done is you did not bring your banished son back. And... Then she makes this interesting argument. This, is, this was really hard for me to wade through because it's, it's, I, I, I kind of see what she's saying, but it, it's, it's an interesting argument. So she argues that we're all going to die, and once we die, our lives are over. We can't relive our lives is basically what she's saying here. Um, and so kind of the argument is if you leave him banished, he's going to die out there, and you're not going to be able to fix it once he's dead. It's kind of what she's saying here, I think. And... But she says that God does not take away life, but he devises a mean. I think she's saying that you have the power to bring him back and fix this thing, and, and God's giving you that opportunity. And, he was, and even, she might be even referring to God's mercy to David, that he didn't let David die. He gave him the opportunity to be forgiven of his sin. Now David has the opportunity to do the same thing to his son, bring him back and show him mercy, and God has given him that opportunity. Um, 
that God devises this means, the banished ones are not expelled from him, that, that David has a chance to make this right now. And, and she's kind of pleading to him that you have the opportunity now, you're in that position, that you can show God's mercy to your son. And so I think she's, that's kind of the plea she's making. Again, it's, it's, just, it's worded kind of funny here, but I think that's where she's going with this. That if you leave him out there, he's eventually going to die. We're all going to die. And once you die, you can't fix this broken relationship. You can't make it right anymore if he dies out there by himself. And that's where it's headed. But David, you're in a position. You're the king. You can bring him back. You can end his exile. And you can restore that relationship. You have that power to do that. And God's giving you that chance to show his mercy to your son. And so you can do that. Um, and so, so he has a chance to show God's mercy to him. And then, um, as she's doing this, she goes back to her story. Again, remember, this story isn't a real story. She didn't have two sons that fought. She didn't have um, the, the one son kill the other son. She doesn't have family members coming to kill this other son. But she still sticks to the story. Um, I, she's still trying to sell this story. I, I think you know she's trying to stay out of trouble for herself because she doesn't want to be shown as you know she made up this story and she's lying to the king, obviously. So she goes back to her story, and so I, I just kind of I, I didn't really go into the story anymore because the story's not really important per se, except that she she talks about the king having the power of good and evil. He's you know like the angel of God. He can make this decision, and he has the power to discern good and evil. You're, you're in that position that you have this chance to make a difference between what's right and what's wrong, King. You can make this decision. She's talking about her story, but she's making the point that you can do this. You, you're given a place of authority that you can make this decision to do the right thing. And, and you have that responsibility as king. And she's saying about her story, but she's really you know, telling David, in your situation, you have the ability to do what's right and what's wrong here. And if you just leave Absalom to go out there and stay in exile, you're not doing anything to fix this. And as long as he's in exile, he's still under your authority. He, he doesn't know that, that he can do anything about it. But you as king can fix it. You can do something about it. You have the power to restore that relationship, and you have the responsibility to choose between good and evil. Do the right thing. And that's kind of what her argument is to him. And so he has the ability to change this relationship. He has the ability to fix this. He has the ability to do something to restore this relationship, whatever that is. And so she's making that argument. Even though she's making it through her false story, she's trying to make that point to David that he can do something because he is the king. He has the power to do that. And he's the one in authority. He's the one who has the ability to fix that relationship. Even though it's Absalom who fled, even though it's Absalom who killed his brother, David has the ability to fix that. He has the responsibility to do that. And I think she's trying to appeal to him, don't hold on to your pride and don't say, well, well he fled. I'm not going to do anything about it because I'm, I, I, I'm mad at him. She's like, you need to fix this. It's your responsibility. And I think sometimes that, that goes for us too, that sometimes you know, something happens and we hold on to our pride and we don't want to do anything about it because we're mad at that person. And sometimes we just need to swallow our pride and go and say, it's our responsibility to live peaceably with all men. And we need to take that step to try to restore and fix those relationships when they're broken. And so she's appealing to that at this point. Um, so I, I think that's what her argument is here. And again, it's a it's a kind of a difficult argument because you have to wade between her her false story that she's putting up here that's not really real. Uh, and she's trying to talk to a king and be respectful of the king and not, you know, she's not Nathan the prophet and trying to go, you're the man, because you can't really do that. So she's trying to appeal to him through the story. Again, it's kind of funny. I don't know if Job even is looking at this, this situation and saying, well, Nathan went to David with the story about the guy and the lambs. Maybe I need to go to him with a story with his widow and try to you know, appeal to him this way. Maybe he, he thought about that too. Um, so it's an interesting story here that we got. Um, so let's see how the king responds to this. Verse 18. Bring about this change of affairs, and your servant Joab has done the same. 
my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God. She knows everything that is in the earth. So David questions the woman. I think this is where I talked about, I don't think this is Joab's first attempt at getting David to change his mind about Absalom. I think Joab has actually gone to David several times and talked to him and said, hey, you need to go get Absalom back. And David's been like, nope, nope, not going to do it. And so I think this is Joab's like, okay, I've got to do something different now. Uh, so I, so, and I think that because I think David is going, okay, wait a second. This, this lady comes to me with this story, and now she's saying, you've got to go get your son and bring him back. This seems like Joab again. You know, I don't think I don't think David out of the blue just kind of goes, "Is this Joab?" You know, without without having something to reference it to. So, so my thought is that Joab has been pestering him for months and months and months, and coming to David and saying, "Hey, David, come on, your son's in exile. Go recall him, bring him back to the kingdom." And David's been going, "No, no, no, we're not doing that. I'm I'm totally against this. He he's he's made his own bed. He needs to stay off in Syria. I'm not going to go get him." And so Joab's like, okay, fine, I'm going to do this now. This is my new, new plan. I'm going, to, I'm going to make him feel guilty by sending this woman with the story and, and kind of trick him into doing that. That's going to be my plan. And David kind of sees through it. David's a smart guy, um, the discerning type of guy. And he, he understands, okay, this, this seems like Joab's handiwork. So he, he says to the woman, okay, um, I'm going to ask you a question. Tell me the truth here. Okay, yeah, sure, I'll tell you the truth. Is this Joab? Did Joab make you do this? You're a very smart king. You're very knowing. God's giving you great wisdom. You're like the angel of God. Yes, Joab, Joab did it. Um, so David wants to know if Joab's behind this. The woman can refer to Joab's, Joab, David's decision. Joab commanded her. He gave her the words to say. He wants David to change his mind concerning Absalom. And then she, she gives this flowery speech about he's like the angel of God, and he has this wisdom. Um, the Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that's in the earth. You know, it's, it's, she's buttering up the king pretty good. I, maybe she doesn't want to get in trouble with him. You know, yeah. She comes with a lie before the king, doesn't want the king to throw her in prison or execute her or something like that, so she's being very careful. It's probably very intimidating, I would imagine, but yeah. um, David at least is not the kind of king like Saul is. Saul probably would have thrown a spear or something like that again. I don't know. Um, so, so David discerns what really is going on. Um, so what happens next? Lynn, go ahead. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have read this thing. Go therefore bring back the young man at the Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Say your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of the servant. So David allows Absalom to return. So even though David figures out that this is Joab's doing, it works. To some extent here, at least. Uh, So David tells Joab to retrieve Absalom, and Joab thanks David. And again, you look at how Joab responds. This isn't just like, oh, thanks. I'm glad that you that that you changed your mind. The way he responds, it sounds like that he's been wanting this for a long time, which makes me think that that this isn't the first time he's approached him. You know, this is a very heartfelt thanks. You know, he falls before the king. He he he's today your servant knows I found favor in your sight. Like you know, in the past I haven't found favor in your sight. I've good, I've asked you many many times and you said no, and finally I found favor in your sight. You know. This is the idea that he's, he's tried this before and it failed and failed and failed. And finally, finally, it's worked. Um, that the king has finally fulfilled the request of the story, the, the way he, he speaks here. So that, this is another reason why I think that you know, Joab has been asking for this over and over again. This isn't the first time that he's tried to get David to go retrieve his son from Syria. Um, so Joab goes, of course, this is what he's wanted, so he goes and brings Absalom back. So everything's happy in the kingdom, right? Not quite. Let's read verse 24. Abigail, go ahead. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king. 
So Absalom returns but does not see David. So he's back. But it's not all well yet. So the king says, let him return to his own house, but do, let him, do not let him see his face, see my face. So he can come home to his house, but he can't come before the king. So David says he can come back, but he's not good with me yet. I still haven't forgiven him. I still haven't acknowledged that he's in the right. He's still kind of, he's here, but he's not here. He's here, but he's still in exile to some extent. He's not allowed to see the king. This is David's son. He can't come see his dad. That's, that's, not, that's not a good relationship yet. So, so he can't come into David's presence. Now, it goes into talking a little bit about Absalom. And I don't know why, I, I didn't even think about this when I gave this to you, but you seem to get all the ones about the physical appearance of these men, Abigail. I'm not sure what that's about. <laughs> It was, it was Saul, and then it was, uh, I don't know if you remember who else, but. Oh, that's Patrick Mahomes. Okay. Yeah, we, yeah Saul was Tom Brady. Is that, okay, that's Patrick Mahomes. Okay, whatever. Um, so Absalom's physical characteristics. He was good looking. There was no one in Israel who was play, praised as much for, for his good looks. So he was this handsome guy. There was no blemish in him from his, the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. That's pretty good. Um, okay, now this is interesting. He cut his hair once a year. Um, that's not very often. And the weight of it was 200 shekels when he cut it. Now, does anybody know how much 200 shekels is? Anybody weigh your hair and get 200 shekels for your... You got a scale that isn't shekels at all? Yeah, 200 shekels. Um, there's, there's two kinds of shekels. There's the standard shekel and there's like the imperial shekel. The standard shekel is about six pounds. Uh, 200 shekels would be six pounds. And that's a little ridiculous for an amount of hair to come off your head if you cut it. I mean, that, that's a lot. Um, imperial shekel is about half, so that's three pounds. That's still a lot of weight. Um, some people think that there might be a scribal error in here because that's, that's still a lot of weight of hair to cut off your head every, even in a year. Um, but if that is, that would, that would be a lot of hair coming off your head. Um, the idea of uh, the hair, it, it, it probably still was a lot of hair no matter what. The idea of the hair is kind of like a manliness. If he can grow that much hair, he's really kind of a manly type of guy. Um, so the, that's why it brings up his hair in this. Yeah. Yeah, it might be part of his beauty, but that, that, was, that was the idea at this time is that, yeah. So, so that, that was kind of the idea of this time and age is that if he could grow the hair, he was, he was just this manly, man's man type of guy. Anyway, so, so just very desirable among men. Now, it, it talks about his children. He had three sons. Now, it doesn't name his sons. Um, it's quite possible that none of his sons survived past a young age is why they're not named in this passage. Um, and then he had a daughter whose name was Tamar. So why do you think his daughter was named Tamar? Because he probably... He probably loved his sister very dearly, and in honor of her, he named his daughter after her. Uh, and she was of beautiful appearance, which kind of makes sense. If he was so handsome, um, he probably had a very beautiful wife, and then you have beautiful children, apparently. So she had a beautiful daughter. So we get kind of an idea of his family. And then, going back to the story... Um, so he comes back to Jerusalem, but he does not see the king for two more years. So now it's been five years, basically, since the incidents where he kills his, his brother, where he does not see David and has no relationship with his father. A very long time here, five years, that basically he is, has this broken relationship with his father because 
of the instance with Amnon. Now, um, I'm going to talk about it in a second, so I'm going to skip ahead here, but uh, verses 29 through 33. Miriam, go ahead. So Absalom finally sees David. I think I have finally in there, right? Finally. Okay, so Absalom sends for Joab, and Joab would not come. So he sends for Joab a second time. Joab still doesn't come. So Absalom sends... Joab several text messages, and Joab doesn't respond. No, he sets his field on fire. That's a good way to get somebody's attention. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he killed his brother. I guess setting a field on fire is a little bit less uh, reckless. Uh, so, so that gets Joab's attention. Joab's like, why are you setting my field on fire? There you go. You wouldn't talk to me. What else was I supposed to do? I don't. I could think of about fifty other things you could have done other than setting my field on fire. I mean, that's that's their livelihood back then. That's that's how you made your money. That's how you provided for yourself. You know, it's like like um, you're not going to talk to me. I'm gonna I'm gonna go burn down your workplace so you don't have any place to go to work. I don't know. What's that? So, uh, yeah, so the Joab's, Joab, like, going to extremes, I guess. I don't know. Here, so he says, give, the, give this message to my dad. Here's the message. Why have you brought me home? Now, this actually makes some sense, this message. It would have been better for me to be sure. Why? Well, at least there, you know, I'm in exile, and, you know, I, I know I'm hundreds of miles away from you, and I can't talk to you anyway. Here, I'm home, and I can't talk to you, and I'm, you know, thousands of feet away, and I'm not allowed to see you. And there's this tension here, and you know, I know that something's wrong there. At least, you know, it's like, well, I'm, I'm so far away, I know there's something wrong. Let me see the king's face. Let me come see you. And then this, this is interesting here. If there's iniquity in me, execute me. Now, he's been home for two years, right? I, th- I think this is kind of a statement where he knows... I've been here for two years. The king's probably not going to kill me at this point. If he was going to execute me, he would have executed me right away when he brought me home. He's let me live for two years. He's, he's probably beyond that now. So I can say that and kind of know he's not going to kill me. Because, I, again, I, and I had this discussion with Thomas and I talked yesterday because Thomas is teaching last week's lesson today. Um, yeah. And because uh, he, he, he said, well, you know, some ways, isn't Absalom, didn't he kind of do the right thing by killing Amnon? And I, I was like, well, I, I think the result's right, because I think Amnon deserved to die. But did he do the right thing in the right manner? And I would say no. I, I, you know, his, his heart wasn't right. He was seeking vengeance. He was seeking uh, to repay evil for evil. You know, he didn't go through the right means. He should have. There was no justice in it. I said, you even look at the method. Like he got the guy drunk and then killed him while he was drunk and helpless. I mean, at least if you're gonna kill the guy, you confront him. And say, hey, look, I'm gonna kill you because you, what you did was wrong. You know, there was never any of that. It was a kind of an ambush, mm. right? So, so, so that. But you know, it. Um, 
so was Absalom really, is, is, is there any iniquity? I think there's some iniquity in him. But, you know, so I don't think he can say with a clear conscience, I didn't do anything wrong. But I think what he's looking at here is that David's not going to kill him at this point. It's been two years he's been back. And so he can give this message and say, if there's any iniquity in me, execute me. He's not going to execute me. It's been two years. You know, he, he kind of knows that he's not going to get killed for this. He knows, and he also, I think, knows David didn't kill Amnon. He didn't do anything to him. He didn't do anything to punish him. If he's not going to do anything to Amnon, he's probably not going to do anything to Absalom. Right? Yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't punish one son. Why is he going to punish the other one? You know, this is the most he's going to do is don't, I, I don't want to see you right now. So I, I think he's, he's pretty secure in the fact that David's not going to kill me. So I, I, can, I can say this. And it's, nothing's going to happen because of it. I don't, I don't think he's saying this sincerely, that there's no iniquity in me. I think he's making the statement. Um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? He's, he's making the statement, but I don't think he believes the statement. I think he's making this as, a, not, not really even sarcastically, but kind of as a, as a, as a taunt to David, like, you're not going to execute me. You're not going to call me guilty for this enough to kill me. Um, he's kind of throwing it in his face. Um, so the king calls Joab, and Joab goes to the king. And Absalom bows before the king. And this is why I think, I don't think he's bowing in repentance. I don't think he's bowing in, like, I'm sorry for what I did. I think this is going back to, like, the lady who came, the widow with the story. He's bowing because that's what you do before the king. And we'll see that he doesn't have a lot of respect for the king. Next week we'll see. He doesn't respect David. He's bowing because that's what you do before the king. Um, and David kisses Absalom, and I think David's kind of ready to restore this. And maybe David, again, is thinking, you know, David knows that part of God's punishment to him is the strife within his family. Maybe David's thinking that this might be the end of it. Maybe God's done with the punishment. And we're going to see that God's not quite done with that yet. But maybe David's thinking this, and maybe David's like, okay, well, this is the end of it now. So... Now, obviously, David can't see the future. So, and this is kind of where we end this chapter. And as we go on, we're going to see that there's still more to come yet. Absalom's not done. So, takeaways. Takeaways, what do you do with this chapter? How do we take away from this? How do we learn what to do from this story? Because I'm guessing most of you don't have... uh, Son who raped the daughter, then had another son kill your son and have to deal with that situation directly, right? Um, so I hope you don't. Um, so we don't have that directly. Now, so I, I, I went at it this way, and there's probably more than this, but this is kind of what I thought of. I see a typo already. I see a couple typos already. Wow. Um, so Joab, right or wrong, sought to help David and Absalom restore their relationship. So I don't... I think Joab was trying to do the right thing here. I think he saw a father-son relationship that was not right, and he wanted to do what's right and try to restore the relationship. Uh, Joab did not give up, but he continues to try to move David to reconcile with Absalom, even tried different strategies when the direct route did not work. And I believe that Joab several times probably tried to approach David directly and then tried the scheme that he has. Um, And Joab was persistent and dedicated to do what he thought was the right thing to do. Uh, And I said, when we know that there's something right for us to do, we need to be dedicated to do it and persistent even when it fails at first. Um, Sometimes we are so quick to give up on things because it didn't work the first time or it didn't work the second time. And I said, it it fails the first, second, or even the 52nd time. We need to keep doing it. We need to keep trying if it's the right thing to do. Uh, We can't just give up because it didn't work the first time. And it may mean changing the direction we do it. Maybe it changes the strategy and how we do it, but if it's the right thing to do, we need to keep doing the right thing. Um, and I think of evangelism especially. If we're sharing the gospel with somebody, they don't trust Christ the first time we share the gospel with them. doesn't mean we give up on them. Sometimes it takes many, many times. And uh, it reminds me of a verse that uh, uh, Paul talks that... Uh, he watered and Apollo planted, but God gives the increase. You know, sometimes you 
you may share the gospel with somebody, you see no results, and somebody else may share, and you don't see results, and the third person, fourth person, maybe the seventh person that comes along, finally they trust Christ. And you didn't see the results, but something you did planted that seed in them. And so even though you don't see the results of that, it, it's still you need to keep doing the right thing and keep on doing what's right and doing what God wants you to do. And I'm not saying that necessarily that Joab was right or wrong in this situation. I, I think Joab thought he was doing the right thing and trying to fix the relationship. And I'm, um, the results, obviously, Absalom goes off and does some very wicked things after this. And it doesn't look like the, um, the results of this turned out well. But I think Joab was trying to restore the relationship between these two. And that was probably right in his eyes, at least. Um, he, he kept on trying. He kept on trying. Um, so then the second thing I thought of is Job's persistence with David reminds me of Jesus' parable in Luke 18, 1 through 8. And I have that down there. Uh, Jesus says, or it says in Luke 18, he, Then he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There's a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God nor regard men. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming to me she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Yet I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And I said here, Joab seems to wear down David to make him do what he really was not to make him do what he really was not really wanting to do. But God does not need to be worn down by us, but will answer us when we cry out to Him because He loves us and cares about us. Yes. You know, we we have a God who's not going to wait for us to weary Him when we cry out to Him. He cares about us. He loves us. And you know, in this situation, I think David. You know, at this scheme, maybe David was at the point like, Job's just going to keep on trying. And you can see David, I mean, David's response when Absalom came back was, you don't see me for two years, but he still brought him back. You know, so David doesn't seem to really want him there, but he listened, he, he relented to Job after Job's scheme. Maybe he thought, Job is not going to keep trying this. He's going to keep on sending these goofy women to me to bother me. I might as well just bring Absalom back and get Job off my back, you know. Maybe that was part of it here. And um, so, but our God's not like that. Our God hears us. He cares about us. And you, know, you hear what Jesus says here. Uh, you know, will God not avenge his only elected cry out day and night to him, though he bears with him long? And then Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he will avenge him speedily. Why? Because God does care about us. He cares about his people. He cares about his children. Uh, he, he, he knows our weaknesses. He knows our need. And we can trust in God's faithfulness. We can trust in God's love for us. We can trust in God's care for us. Does he let us go through hard times? Yeah, he does. That's for our good. That's for our growth. That's for that we'd learn patience, that we'd learn um, to get through hardships so we can help others through hardships, so we can comfort others. You know, the Bible talks about that. But God always cares about us. He always does what's best for us. And so we can trust that. And when we pray, for, pray to him, we know that he listens to us and he answers us. And he does what's best for us. And so uh, we can trust that. And that, that kind of made me think about that. And I know that's not a direct um, application of the passage, but just, just the idea of Job coming and coming and coming again and finally David wearing down made me think of that parable and brought that to mind. So I thought I'd encourage you with that this morning. Um, so any other thoughts? Like I said, it's, it's hard in this passage to think of some of these things, but um, Lynn. I just think of, uh, you know, our own kids when we're out of store or something, in case my head went that way. Give me this, give me this, and then eventually give in. Mm-hmm. And uh, Absalom, you know, we'll find out later, manipulative. 
Yeah. Yes. That that is true. Thank you. That is that is good. That he devises means, and it's and that that's very true of God. That it's all through His means. It's all through what He has done that He's reconciled us. That it's not anything that we can do. It's not any any goodness on our part or any righteousness or any acts that we can do, but through faith in Him that He provides that reconciliation. So good. Um, if I can tell a funny story quick, too. It's not off what you said, but what Flynn said. Um, I think it is. You might not laugh at it. Um, so Lynn was talking about uh, kids at the store begging for stuff. This is kind of the opposite direction. Um, years ago, uh, Sue was at Costco yeah, um, with uh, her dad uh, and the kids. And they were shopping and going through the store, and they got to the candy aisle. And you know, at Costco, the candy aisle is not single candy bars. It's boxes of candy, right? (laughs) So she's walking to the store, and her dad blurts out in a loud voice, okay, kids, grab your favorite box of candy. Raise the kids, and Sue's like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) So... So that's kind of the opposite, where the kids aren't begging for the candy, but the grandparents are giving away the candy. No, so anyway, so yeah, that, that 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 was the more gentle father-in-law than than what I experienced when I first met. Yeah, yeah. I two people got to pick one box. Okay, I didn't I didn't remember how that ended. I wasn't there, but I just I just laughed when I heard that. So. Now it's now it comes up every once in a while as a joke in the house that somebody will blurt out, everybody grab their favorite box of candy. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Sorry, that was... I'm giving a little more time for the women to get stuff set up because I know Sue said she was going to jump out of Sunday school early. And Yes? I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it takes that third party to get in there and kind of see that and kind of push people to do that. I, I think, you know, Joab, like I said, he's, he's kind of been our bloodthirsty general that uh, wants to go around killing people most of the time. And here's the one story where he kind of seems to perceive the heart of people and kind of push people to do what's right. It's kind of a different side of Joab we see. It's kind of a nice side of Joab. I kind of think he's at least trying to do the right thing and make things right. Now, Absalom, obviously, I think there's a lot of bitterness in him, and um, it's not limited towards Amnon. I think he's bitter towards David for not doing anything, and we'll see that uh, in the following weeks he kind of takes it out on David a little bit, and it's part of God's judgment towards David, too and God's divine sovereignty that that happens, but um, Joab's at least trying to reconcile that relationship and seeing that that needs to happen. So, yeah, that's a good point. And we can be that that kind of peacemaker between people sometimes when we see that that needs to happen. That's good. Well, I think the women are trying to get us food. So... The problem with what ifs are, it, it didn't. So, you know, it's one of the one of the great theological questions that seminarians often ask is, what if the Jews had accepted Christ as the Messiah? 
And the answer always is, well, the Romans still would have crucified Jesus, and then he would have brought in the kingdom right away. Um, And that's a great what if, but that's not what happened. The Jews rejected him, Jesus was still crucified, and then the church came in. And that's just how it is. I mean, it is a what if. Now, the the one what if that Jesus answers is... uh, um, is what if, you know, the stuff that was preached to the Jews happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and those places, and they would have repented. We know that that's a what if that Jesus answered himself, and we know that that's true because Jesus answered it. So there's a couple places like that in the Bible where the what ifs were answered. But for the most part, when we answer what ifs, we can kind of say, it's a a nice question to ask, but it's kind of immaterial because that's not what happened. Um, and you're kind of working against God's sovereignty and God's eternity and his omniscience and saying, well, what if, well, that's not what happened, and God in his sovereignty knew that wasn't going to happen. So you can probably ask God in eternity, and I don't know if God's going to answer you or not, because he might say it's not really important to answer. (laughs) Is that a bad? Is that a unsatisfying answer? <laughs> that's that's all I got. Okay. What's that? What do you think about middle knowledge? Middle knowledge? Yeah. You never heard about middle knowledge? No. Uh, it's like the idea that God doesn't just know everything that uh, has happened, will happen, but every every possibility of what could. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. That's like, that's kind of hard for me to wrap my brain around because that goes into the knowledge of what God knows and doesn't know, which is like beyond the scope of what I could probably know about God. It, it, it's kind of yeah. It's I don't know. It, it, it's it's a hard hard concept to get around because it's like you know God is a God of truth and stuff that didn't happen is not truth. So would that even be? But God knows all things. So I don't know. It's to me, it's just hard to get around. I'm gonna I'm gonna close in prayer, or I'm gonna have somebody close in prayer here because I think. That's probably a topic for a more private discussion that probably most of you probably aren't really concerned about, and it's one of those arguments that I don't think is really uh, important, an argument. In fact, people who are probably listening are like, why have I listened to the last five minutes of the tape? Because it's probably not that important. Okay. Anyway, um, let me only want to close this in prayer. Yes. Um, And I don't know if they're ready yet, so if you could make your way... Yeah, if you go to the auditorium to start with, and we'll just see where they're at. And then we'll let everybody know when they're ready.